Well, Mark Twain once said, few things are harder to put up with than the annoyance of a good example. (laughs) Now, that's one of uh, Twain's tongue-in-cheek type of statements, but I think he was on to something when he said it. When you think about a good example, they can help us to work harder, reach higher, and aspire to great things. And yet they do have one annoying problem, which is that they have no real power to enable us personally to achieve those same things in our lives. Warren Wiersbe says, admiration for a great person can inspire us, but it cannot enable us. Unless the person can enter into our own lives and share his skills, we cannot attain to his heights of accomplishment. It takes more than an example on the outside, it takes power on the inside. You know, as we looked at the first part of Philippians chapter 2 last time, what we saw is that Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of humility and obedience. You recall as we looked at the first part, we saw how he left his throne in heaven to come to earth and give his life to save us. And this week, as we look at the second part of Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see how Jesus serves as our great example. Uh, He's not just our inspiration, but he also provides us with the power that we need to imitate him. I invite you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2 as we read verses 12 through 18. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way, and share your joy with me. Now, as this section begins, we see the subject of obedience is introduced with the words, so then, or therefore. And what those words mean is it's tying what we're seeing here with what has preceded us. This is uh, what Paul has just said about how Christ was obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. And the result of Jesus' obedience was not only that he was exalted to the highest place in heaven, as we saw last time, But it also means that we, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, have been given the privilege of having a place in heaven, the gift of eternal life that we too get to enjoy one day. And it's important to remember that context as we read the words here that say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to notice it doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. It has to already be in you to come out of you. And I want you to to notice, uh, as he's talking about this, the context is to those of us who are believers. Now, as we read the scriptures, the, the Bible is very clear that we cannot work for our salvation. Many of you have memorized this verse in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. As we're looking at this, we see that we're not saved by how good we are, how good we live our lives. Rather, it's based upon what God did when he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Do you remember that first part of chapter 2? 
how Jesus left heaven and came to earth to ultimately go to the cross. And this is the context. And as we're reading Philippians, remember this is a letter, and it began all the way back in Philippians 1.1. And we saw that this letter was addressed to the saints who are in Philippi. The saints, as we saw, were all of you who are here who know Christ. You as a believer in Jesus are a saint. And so Paul is speaking to those who are believers. He said, he calls you here in verse 12, my beloved. This is a word that in Greek grammar, if you were reading this in the original text, you would see my beloved is in what's called the vocative case. Now that's a big fancy way of telling you that it's a form of direct address. It limits and it specifies, it designates specifically who is being spoken to. This is not uh, a call to anybody in the world. This is a call to those who are already believers who are in the world. See, what Paul is doing here is he's not telling us how to be saved, but instead what he's saying, for those of you who are saved, make sure that your practice matches your position as a believer, that your walk matches your talk. And again, I'm, I'm hammering this home because it's important to understand the context when you see work out your salvation. As you read earlier in Philippians 1.27, we were told only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you'll remember there that we talked about the specific Greek word polytomai that means to live as a citizen. Now, Paul tells the Philippians in this letter, our citizenship is in heaven. So what he's telling us as believers is while we are here on earth, our citizenship is in heaven. What he's telling us is there is a day coming where we will leave this earth and we will get to go home to our real home country, heaven. And what he's telling us is until that day comes, we need to live in a way that our practice matches our position. You might remember that when we talked about salvation earlier in this series, if you've been with us as we've gone through Philippians, we talked about how there are three different theological terms that describe a believer's journey to Jesus. The first is called justification. Justification is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we are declared righteous, not based upon our works, but the work that Jesus did when he went to the cross and died for us. At that moment, we are saved and we step into the family of God, but we don't get to step into heaven until that final stage called glorification. Glorification is when our life on this earth is over, whether it's the rapture or death for us, then we go home to be with the Lord in heaven. And at glorification, when we step into heaven, we're made perfect. Our sin nature is done away with, and, and we are given our eternal state where we will be in perfection. But in between the two is the step called sanctification. Sanctification is our walk where we become more and more Christ-like. And sometimes as believers, we're moving toward Christ-likeness, and sometimes we're backsliding and we're not living as we should. And so that's that middle process. As Paul is talking here about working out our salvation, he's speaking of that middle step of sanctification. We've been saved, and we're looking forward to that day when we get home to heaven. But right now, he says, for those of us who are in this middle stage of living our life, he wants us to look more and more like Christ. Very rarely does somebody go from justification to glorification. We see an example of that in the scriptures in Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, 42, Jesus, you'll recall, was dying on the cross, and as he was being crucified, there were two criminals dying that same day. They were also being crucified. One of those men mocked Jesus made fun of him and said, if you're really who you say you are, if you're really the Messiah, then save us. But the other man said this. 
In Luke 23, 42, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Here was a convicted criminal, a condemned man who was dying for the way that he lived his life. And yet because he put his faith in Jesus, because he came to that step of justification, he was told, you are saved. Now, nobody walked by and baptized him on the cross. That man never did one good act his entire life after coming to Christ because he came to faith and then he was dying. And so he went from justification to glorification. But for most of us, that doesn't happen. We go through life, and this is what the the focus is here for us. In Philippians 2.12, we're told to work out our salvation. The Greek verb used here literally means to work to full completion. To work to full completion. And this is a word that you find not only in the Bible, but in in extra-biblical literature. The the word is used in, in stuff outside of the Bible that spoke of a farmer working his field. It was used of a miner that was in a, in a mine uh, digging through for precious ore or gems. And the idea was as you worked in there, you were producing something. You were, you were drawing out the good things. You were producing the crops from the land as God blessed it. And you were, you were excavating, you were harvesting uh, the precious metals out of a mine through your labor, and as Christians, we're called to produce as well. I showed you that verse from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and not your works. And yet, as you look at the very next verse in Ephesians 2, 10, this is what it tells us. This is what it should tell us. Can you release the slides, please? It tells us there in Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, we're saved by grace through our faith, but then it says once we are saved, God has something for us to do. He wants us working out our salvation, producing, following through in the good works that he calls us as believers to do. You and I don't earn our salvation, but once we are saved, God doesn't want us just sitting around. There should be evidence of our new life in Christ. We find this in the book of James. It says in James 2.17, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Later in verse 16, Paul will say, in the day of Christ Jesus, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. You see Paul saying, my life was one marked by labors, by striving, as he's called us to do earlier, to strive together as believers. He gives us this picture of working out his salvation, and I want you to notice the attitude that accompanies it in verse 12. He says, as he talks about it, to do it with fear and trembling. Now, in ancient times, there was something called the tremble factor, and the tremble factor was based upon the way that they would do construction, because what would happen, here you see some workmen around the turn of the century constructing an arch. And you see that they will brace out with a a wood type of scaffolding and they'll build this arch. And ultimately what they'll do in one of these arches is they'll lay the keystone. It's that center stone that they would bring and put in. And once the keystone is in place, they will knock the wood out from under it. And as they do so, that arch will settle upon itself and it will hold. And then they'll build up over the top of it, aqueducts or other things is how they would do this. 
And the Trimble Factor was so named because the way that they would uh, give some extra incentive to the engineer who designed the, the project, to the supervising person who made sure the work was done with excellence and quality, they would have that individual stand underneath the arch as the scaffolding was knocked out. And as that stone would begin to settle upon itself, guess what? If your design was faulty, or if the workmanship had not been done properly, what would happen to the arch? It would collapse upon you, and it could kill you. So you can see why you would tremble as your work was tested. And so when Paul tells us here to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the idea is not that as believers we have to worry about whether or not we're good enough to get to heaven. That God is saying, well, you know, on that day of judgment, I'm not sure if you're going to get in. Are you in or out? Are you worried or not? What he's telling us here when he says to work out our salvation, remember, it's not based upon our work. It's based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus died on the cross in John 19.30, he said, it is finished. A word that literally meant paid in full. What God said is, I have finished the work. I have closed the account. I have paid the penalty of death for your sins in full. As believers, we don't have to worry about whether or not the ticket is good to get home to heaven. Jesus proved that when he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and showing that he was indeed the promised Messiah who had conquered sin and death. This idea of fear and trembling means reverence and respect for God. You know, what I see and am sad, saddened by so often with Christians is some say, well, you know, salvation is a free gift of God. And some people will say, now, pastor, the Bible says that once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I can't lose my salvation. Is that right? And I say, it is right. And so there are a few that say, well, then I have a license to sin. I can just take advantage of God's grace. I can go out and do all that I want because I'm in and I don't have to worry about it. And what Paul tells us in Romans 6, 1 through 2 about that type of attitude, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? He says, may it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? There's a little girl whose father was a pastor. And, and, and she came and she said, Daddy, is, is it possible for a person to go their whole life without sinning? And the father answered and said, no, honey, it's not possible. You see, because 1 John 1.10 tells us, if we say then that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And, and she said, well, daddy, what about a year? Can a person go a whole year without sinning? And he said, honey, that would be so hard to do that I don't think it's possible. And she said, well, then, daddy, what about a day? Can a person go a whole day without sinning? And, and he said, you know, honey, again, that would be really, really hard to not have a thought that was wrong, to not have anger, to not have some action. So I think that'd be really hard. And she said, well, daddy, what about a moment? Could a person go a moment without sinning? And the father said, yes, honey, I think, I think you could go a moment without sinning. And she said, well, then, daddy, I want to live my life moment by moment. And friends, that's how we're to live, moment by moment, depending upon God, living our lives, asking him to help us do the things that we should. And as we live our lives, we're not left to do it on our own, because as you look at verse 13, what does it tell you? It says, for it is God who is at work in you. 
It is God who is at work in you. The Greek word that is used here is energeo. And this is where we get our English word energy from. As you look at that word, it, it means it not only it energizes, but literally it provides the enablement. And so as we're talking about living our lives for the Lord, what it says is God is the one who enables us to be able to do it. Barclay, a theologian, says this word conveys the thought of energy that is fully active and effective in reaching its goal. It is not just resident energy, but energy in operation. Energy in operation. Do you realize right now there's energy at work all around us? The sound system, the lights, the air conditioning, all the things that are happening right now are happening because there is active energy. But as much as you see going on, do you realize there's, there's so much more energy that is available to us? You could plug into all the plugs around here. We could turn on multiple other things. There's additional active energy that is not being in, in use. And so what we're told is that as believers, we have energy within us. We as Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. He is the one who enables and empowers us. In Ephesians 3.20, we're told, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. There's a power available to us that so few of us fully tap into. And yet, some of us uh, live our lives forgetting about that power. And so we go through our life like this. I've got a glove here. And as you look at this glove, it, it really can't do much. It can't pick this microphone up. It can't move things. And, and this can be an image of our life. And what God says to us is, as Christians, we have been filled by the Holy Spirit. He, he, once we allow him to enter into our life and to take control of us, then we are able to do all kinds of things. And this is an image of what we have here. We as believers have been filled. We've been enabled and energized. And what God says is, why are you going along looking like this when you have power that is resident, power that is available to you? In verse 13, we're told, it is God who is at work in you. God never asks us to go out and do things on our own. He will never give us a commission without the enablement to go with it. Think of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We're told, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And as we're given this command to go, what is the power that he promises we have? He ends in that commission by saying, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God will never send you to do something without giving you the power in order to do it. The problem is some of us just fail to plug into the power source that's available. When he tells us to work out our salvation here, God gives us what we need to do it. If we will yield ourselves to him and we will plug into the power through prayer, through Bible study, through fellowship, through working with other believers. This past week was an excellent example of that. As we watched all the diversity of spiritual gifts coming together and being used to see all these new lives come to Christ. As we live our lives for God, Galatians 2.20 tells us what our life will look like. There Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, who delivered me up, who delivered himself up for me. Would you say that describes your life? Are you one who has given up your old way of life for the new life you have? 
Have you truly been crucified with Christ, dying to your old way of life? Paul tells us our lives are to be lived for God's good pleasure, not ours. Now, that doesn't mean that, that your life here is going to be miserable, that you have to give up all the things in life that are pleasurable. Jesus Christ told us in John 10.10, he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. It's not a dreary existence. It's a wonderful way to live our lives. And he wants us to have that more fulfilling life, which includes getting rid of the stuff we don't need, like what's mentioned in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There was a, a monk who entered the Monastery of Silence once. And as he came into this monastery, uh, the chief priest that was there met him and he said, he said, brother, this is a Monastery of Silence. You're not allowed to speak at all here unless I give you permission. Do you understand that? He said, I do. He said, are you willing to come and be a part of us? And he said, I am. So this monk was there for an entire year, and at the end of his year, the, the chief priest came to him, and he said, he said, brother, you've been here for an entire year, so you may speak two words. And he looked at the, the chief priest, and he said, hard bed. <laughs> and, and the chief priest said, well, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll try to get you a better bed. Another entire year passed, and, and the head priest came to this man again and said, you've been here another year. You can speak two additional words. And he said, cold food. And he said, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll see if we can do something more to make the food better. At the end of the third year, the, the monk was brought before the chief priest and he said, brother, you've been here another, three, another entire year, you can speak two additional words. And he said, I quit. <laughs> and the chief priest said, you know, it's probably best, all you've done is complain since you got here. Now, as you think about your own life, how many of us are like Brother John here, where we're known for complaining? You know, most of us can speak a lot more than two words a year, but if your words were limited and you could only say just a few things, would you really want to use them to complain? You know, I'll have to confess to you, there are times in my life that, that I grumble and complain. There are times that, that I'm not much fun to be around if I'm like that. And if I'm not fun to be around, if people don't want to be around me if I'm a grumbler or a complainer, how in the world am I going to be able to tell them about Jesus Christ? Or, or better yet, if my life is one that is known as, as somebody who's a complainer, uh, and, and I'm supposed to have the, the joy of Jesus and the light of the world in me, how am I going to let that shine? If people are saying, I don't want to be around somebody who is like you. As you look at your own life, how much grumbling or complaining do you do? Now, even if you can use unlimited words, remember that if we're marked like that, people won't want to be around us. There was a research study done at the University of California, and it was later repeated at the University of Miami. And they compared the difference between those who complained and those who focused on finding something to be thankful for each day. And this is what secular universities found. They found that those who focused on positive things rather than wallowing in misery were more joyful and energetic. They found medically that they slept better and they had less headaches and even colds. And another benefit was that their social life improved because people chose to be around them versus the chronic complainers. 
As you think about your own life, even if you're saying, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to be one of those really religious type of people. None of us want to be religious. We want to have a relationship with Jesus that's shown. But even if you're saying, forget all the things the Bible tells us will come as a benefit, there are just lifestyle things that are beneficial if we will be those who stop grumbling and complaining. Now, if you're somebody who has trouble with this, let me give you a way to help yourself. Just memorize Ephesians 4.29. One verse that you need to memorize. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. Edification, the edifice of a building, it speaks of building up. And so if you will memorize Ephesians 4.29 and use it as a test for everything you say, you can write this verse on a card, put it in your cubicle at work, you can put it on the visor of your, your car, you can put it uh, on your desk, slip it in the desk cover of your notebook at school, wherever it is that you tend to have trouble with the grumblies. Just have that verse. And every time you're about to say something, run it through the Ephesians 4.29 test. And ask yourself, let no unwholesome word, is this a word that's kind of icky, it's not really helpful, beneficial, foul language? Don't say it. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. Ask yourself, is this going to build somebody up? Is it going to inspire somebody? Is it going to be helpful for the moment? Is this a word that will give grace to those who hear? Will it, will it speak encouraging words to somebody? You take that and you use it as a test, and it'll change the way that you speak. I led a missions trip to Mexico once with a student group, and we had about 50 students and accompanying chaperones and others. And if you've ever, ever gone on a cross-cultural experience, crossing the border, and it was hot, and we were sleeping you know, on the rooftop of this uh, place because there was no air conditioning. You know, it was one of those two or three weeks of, of really kind of roughing it. And for a lot of these teenagers who had never done that, it was a change. And there was lots of grumbling and complaining. And you know, as you go on 16, 17-hour car trips with a whole bunch of teenagers all together in a van, before we left, what I said is everybody who goes on this trip has to memorize Ephesians 4.29. <laughs> it was a condition to go on the trip. And then whenever complaining would break out, whenever kids were being mean to one another, uh, we would just simply say, what part of Ephesians 4.29 does that match? And then we'd make them say the verse. Oh, unwholesome word, I can't hear you. And no unwholesome word, proceed. And so they would start, well, after a while, they started checking each other. You'd hear somebody three rows back in the van cutting on somebody, and one of the kids would say, uh, what's Ephesians 4.29 say? And halfway through the trip, the entire trip changed. People started to, to change the way they talked, the way they were interacting. And as we got back, uh, all of the kids and all of the parents said, that was the most unified, fun trip we've ever been on. And it was just because people learned to watch what they were saying and to make sure it was what we see here. Now, as we do these things, it will help us to fulfill what we're told later here in Philippians. It says the second command here in verse 14 is do all things without disputing. You know, we've all heard the sad stories of churches that are at war within their walls. People who are against each other, that are tearing apart the church rather than building up God's work. And what Paul wanted the Philippians and us today is to be known for unity, to be known for love. To be known as a place where people actually enjoy coming in and are exposed to the joy of Jesus. 
He says in verse 15, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Paul says you've been called to be lights. Lights in the world. You know, when we had all the kids up here this morning, I should have had them sing this song because, you know, I don't sing very well. So have you ever sung that song, This Little Light of Mine? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Have you ever done that? And you know, many of us kind of live by that verse, don't we? We make sure it's exactly that, this little light. (laughs) And we we go around with like a pin light, light, kind of a secret service Christian. You know, wherever we are, we say, I'm going to let a little light shine into the darkness. But the picture that we're given here is Paul says to let our light shine. He says, we're to be a lighthouse. We're we're to be that beacon in the darkness. In Matthew 5, 14 through 16, we're told, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see what your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. As Paul says, let your light shine, as he's calling on us to be the lights in the world, he he uses a word that is even bigger than the lighthouse. The word literally is luminaries. And that word describes the stars that are in the heavens. And he says, we as believers are to be luminaries. We're to be like the sun in the sky. We're to be those stars that give off the light. Not this little light of mine but we're to be lights that draw people to the truth. You know, even if it is just a tiny light, if you've ever been in pitch blackness, and if somebody will light even just a candle, have you ever seen how it just dispels the darkness? Suddenly it just lights up the whole place, and people are drawn to the light. And that's the picture that we're given here. We're called to be those that that are shining the light. You know, most of us spend more time shining our shoes or our cars and, and worrying about how they look more than we worry about what our life looks like. And what God says is our lights need to be shined. We are to be blameless, innocent, above reproach. Now, this isn't saying you're to be perfect. This is speaking of the sacrifices that would be brought into the temple. They were to be the best of the best. These sacrificial animals as they were brought in. Today, we don't have to offer animal sacrifices where the blood is shed to temporarily cover our sins. Because again, Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. He paid the penalty in full. And the picture, the image here is that our lives would be like these sacrifices, acceptable to God. We're told in Romans 12:1, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there are times we don't live like that. You know, the problem with a living sacrifice is when you put it on the altar, it crawls off sometimes, doesn't it? There are times that we, we backslide, that sanctification, we're moving away from what God wants us to be. And in those times where we sin, God has given us what we need to change. 
Not only do we have the power within us, but he says, when you make that mistake, you know, if you've ever had a light that gets mud on it, have you ever been driving through a, if you've ever gone four-wheeling and you know the mud cakes the lens of your spotlights at night, and so you get out there and you clean it off. The light's still shining underneath, but the, the, the muck in the mire has blocked it until you clean it off. And in 1 John 1 9, what we're told is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He says when your light is being blocked, if you're not shining as you should, then come to God and clean it off. God will take us where we are and he'll begin to help us move forward in our walk. None of us are perfect, we're just forgiven. And as those who are forgiven, God wants us to go into the world and tell other sinners how they too can be forgiven. He says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. When he says holding fast, it's the idea of holding forth. It's like a torch. Have you ever seen the Olympics where they'll take that torch and then they light the cauldron? You're holding fast to it and then you hold it forth, the light. And this is what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to hold on to our faith and then hold it out to others as a light. As Paul talks about this, he's using a dual image of a runner in a race and a worker toiling. Remember those that are producing. And as Paul thinks about his life, how he talks about, I have run the race, I have, I have finished the race at the end of his life in one place. Or as he talks here about being a worker, he adds to the image by, by saying, literally, I want my life to be poured out. He says, my life has been marked by living for the Lord, I followed the example of Jesus. He said earlier in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he knew that when he died, when this life on this earth was over, he said, there is something waiting for me, something that is great, rewards that are waiting. We need to live our lives in a way where we don't worry so much about what we have in this world. Friends, do you realize it doesn't matter how much money you make? It doesn't matter what title or position you have. It doesn't matter how many cars or boats or other toys you have. You know what happens to all that stuff one day? It's going to burn up. It's going to rot. It's going to be carried to the junkyard. It's going to be sold at a garage sale for pennies on a dollar. And what God says is that is not the stuff that you need to spend your life pursuing. Instead, it's living for the Lord. And what Paul says is, I was one who was faithful. I live for God. And he says, I'm even willing to go to the next step and to give it all literally, to have my life poured out. As Paul considers how he's lived his life, he thinks of it coming to an end. And he says in verse 17 and 18, you know, I may in fact die for my faith. I may have my blood poured out in martyrdom. Here he uses the image of a drink offering. A drink offering was what, when you would give a sacrifice and it would be put on the altar, whether it was a type of a meat or a cereal offering, they would then come with a libation offering sometime and they would pour out very precious oil or a fine wine on it. And Paul says, my life has been on the altar. It's been serving God. And he says, as a final offering, I want to add to it, even with my lifeblood possibly being poured out in martyrdom. And as Paul speaks of the end of his life, it's not a time of sorrow, but one where he rejoices because he says, my life has been lived for God's good pleasure and purpose. Friends, as we come to a close today, I want you to ask yourself, what about your life? Are you living your life for God's good pleasure and purpose? 
Are you satisfied with how you've invested your life, your time, your talents, your treasures? Are you one that as you come to the end of your life that you can say, I have no real regrets, that I've lived for God and I'm satisfied? If you can't say that, do you know it's not too late to make some changes? I want you to think about your life for a moment. And if you have anything that you say, you know, I don't know that I could fully say I'm satisfied with how I've lived my life for God, then it's not too late to make some changes. The first step for someone here today may be to start a relationship with God. It may be one where you're saying, you know, Roger, I'm on this side of the line of faith and I need, I need to begin my journey with Jesus. I need to come to faith in Jesus. And you accept his death in your place and you start that relationship where you're justified, you're declared righteous. And then for others of us, we need to say, you know, I've been kind of living right here where I started. And I realize today I need to turn and I need to have my practice begin to match my position. I need to begin living my life for the Lord so that I'm getting closer and closer to that goal of what God wants me to look like. So on that day when I step from earth into heaven, it's just a little hop step instead of a, a massive jump from here to there. So as you look at your life today, do you need to come to faith in Christ? Or do you need to rearrange your priorities? So this part of life called sanctification is one that matches more the life of our Savior and what he did for us. I want you to consider that for a moment, and then I want to close this in prayer. So just take a moment to examine your life and tell God what changes you need to make today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the great gift of new life that you gave to us. We thank you, Jesus, for coming and being our sacrifice, the one who would pay that penalty of sin, dying in my place and that of everyone else here. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here today that needs to take that step of faith, that needs to say to you, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I've tried to live a good life, but I realize I've fallen short of that standard of perfection, that I've sinned. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came to die for me, to pay that penalty in full. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sin and to you to be my savior. Thank you for that great gift of new life. And Jesus, we thank you for so many of us here that have already taken that step of faith, that have come to receive that great gift of eternal life. But Lord, some of us have to say this morning, we, we haven't been living for you. Our life has been marked more by what we want and following our pleasures rather than your good pleasure and purpose for us. And today, Jesus, we want to tell you that we want to start to walk with you more closely. We ask for your help that you would empower us, Holy Spirit who lives within us, that you would help us to begin to draw more and more upon you as we draw closer to you, God. So would you help us, Lord, to be those who go into the world to be lights. Father, would we not just be these little light of mind Christians, but would we indeed become luminaries, those who will let your light shine into the world that will dispel the darkness and will show people the way of life. So send us out now, Lord, we pray, to be your witnesses, your messengers. And we thank you again, God, for the the children who came to know you this week. And we pray, Father, you would help them to continue to grow in their walk with you.
It's in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, that we pray and thank you. Amen.